Speech Pitch by Iska Sack. Hello everyone and welcome back to Speech Pitch. I am Katarina Petalio. And I am Thomas Roland and we will be your hosts during this episode. And today we will be chatting with Nick Cummins. Nick is an Australian speech scientist currently working as a lecturer at King's College in London, where he teaches about AI applied to speech analysis for health. Welcome, Thanks. Nick, and good, good day, mate. Did I say it right? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, good day. <laughs> so, as I was saying before, Nick, you work with machine learning to enrich our understanding of different health conditions, focusing particularly on mental health disorders, right? So what yep. motivates you to work in this area? Um, it's a, just a really interesting area, I think, to be working in, like just a, a unique set of challenges that come with the machine learning, come with the speech to try to get it all to work. And I think the sort of operating in health and hopefully one day get get out something that might be able to sort of help people in their day-to-day lives is good motivation as well. Okay. And well, we, we do have some questions about that topic. So like there is an extensive body of literature about machine learning systems that leverage speech for diagnosis and monitoring for different diseases. I think like Alzheimer, Parkinson, depression, yeah. And even recently, COVID-19. And often these papers, like they report very good results or at least promising results. But at the same time, there is a gap between the research and the solutions that are currently implemented in real life scenario. Why do you think there is such a big gap between research and real life scenario? I think it's to do with just, yeah, you're right. We've got really promising results but we haven't got the truly large data sets and implemented through into sort of clinical trials and things that are going to actually bring about real change in healthcare yet. And I think some of it comes about from a lot of speech databases are a sort of one-off snapshot. We record someone once, we put a particular health label with them, and that's that. We sort of need to go into more longitudinal recordings, collecting data over longer periods of time to realise sort of how changes in health fluctuate in the voice. And I think then we'll start to be able to build things that are a bit more reliable, a bit more robust, maybe potentially a bit more personalised. And I think that's when we'll start to really push into more real-world applications. Right. And also in the speech learning community now, there's a strong discussion about explainability and whether that is important or not so important. Do you believe that the lack of explainability in most of deep learning models is affecting the openness of the medical staff to use or integrate machine learning solutions in their daily activity? Or, you know, this is just too far and first you need to focus on data sets and this explainability discussion, maybe it's only happening inside the machine learning community. It's really hard to answer that question because I think there's... There's, there's a few ways we can come at it. I think as a sort of simple answer, yes, a lack of explainability is probably holding us back. I mean, people want to, you know, if you go to a doctor and they say you've got Parkinson's disease, your first natural question is why? Or, or words to those sort of effect. You want to understand, okay, what about me has made you think, has made you determine that that's the condition I have? And yeah, we still can't do that with sort of deep learning systems at all. We're, you know, things like the Lime Toolkit, we've definitely got, a, I guess, peak at explainability on a sort of instance by instance basis, but not really anything that's truly global explainable or offering that wider sort of explanation. And I also think, especially in healthcare, the diagnosis is only one step and understanding the symptoms 
might lead to help understanding the sort of treatment paths you might take. So that's where the sort of explainability comes in. I also think there's just fundamentally different ways in a lot of the time how analysis is done in a clinical environment using more conventional statistics, learning what factors affect the model other than the machine learning where we're trying to optimize a model to do prediction. So they're sort of fundamentally different ways of looking at the same problem. And yeah, I think both communities sort of need to work together to come together a little bit more to get the best of both these worlds out somehow. And I think that's some real gains there as well. Okay, very interesting. Uh, so Nick, also the, the goal of this podcast is to get to know the person we interview. So we we try to reconstruct the story of your life so and your career. <laughs> so I'm going to like do a very short summary and you can add or highlight anything if you want. So first, you were born in Australia and you became an electrician. Yep. And only later you decide to go to college and study electrical engineering. And you end up pursuing a PhD about automatic assessment of depression from speech. Afterward, you moved to Germany, where you were a postdoc at the University of Basel and an habilitation candidate at the University of Augsburg. And now you live in London and you are a lecturer at the King College. In the meanwhile, you work on several international and multidisciplinary projects that combine machine learning, health and well-being. So is that right? Did, did I miss something or do you want to add something? Uh, you left a little gap out there in the middle. So when I was an electrician, I also traveled a bit. I lived in Britain then and I lived in Ireland as well. So yeah, I've, I've moved around a lot in my life. Did you move because you wanted to or is it because there was like some opportunities that appear and you took them? A little bit of both. You know, um, my wife is British, so that means we've sort of always got two homes split between Australia and Britain. So that sort of motivates us to live in one of the two regions. But a big choice of choosing Germany was to have a little bit of an adventure and open an interesting opportunity for us to live somewhere, well, live in Europe that neither of us had had before. So we thought it was a would be a fun step to take. It was definitely culturally a really different experience and a, a really interesting learning experience. I guess you guys are probably used to having to work in a second language and things. So coming at it from the opposite way was definitely, I think, really interesting challenging at times of course with that but yeah it's just good to good to live in other places yeah i, I definitely agree and um, you know about the research environments in the countries that you've been so you've been in australia and then germany and then britain is it very similar or do you feel like there's like major cultural or environmental differences between the labs i was in it's all been slightly different experiences but built on a bit of context so in australia i was in quite a small group so you know we were focused in, on sort of, especially during my PhD, that was my main focus. I didn't sort of interact as much with other students in the group in terms of writing papers with people, of course, socializing and things we did. But yeah, it was a very much more individual focus. And then in Germany, it was a much larger group and sort of interacting with different people. And then since I've been in London, it's been COVID. So I've not been to the office. I've never had an office in London. You know, it's this, my, my home is my office. So I haven't, I've only met a handful of my colleagues once or twice in person so far. So I still feel like even though I've been working here a year, it's still a very new job in that regard. 
one thing I definitely noticed in Germany coming from Australia was we definitely had a more relaxed attitude towards time. I was constantly late for my first sets of meetings, sort of arriving on the hour or just slightly after the hour to arrive to find the room full and everybody waiting for the meeting to start or starting directly on time as opposed to turning up a couple of minutes late with a cup of coffee, which is a bit more acceptable in Australia, the sort of five past the hour meeting start time. And then it sort of flicked back towards that now in the UK. I definitely feel I'm one of the earliest meetings from my sort of training in Germany. So, yeah, there's just little things like that definitely do make a difference. And you, you learn them and you pick them up and they sort of become habit. Yeah, so like advantage and like disadvantage. And how did moving across countries and also like continent for you uh, affect your life and also your research? Um I mean, it's definitely stressful packing up everything at one end and trying to find homes, trying to do all paperwork again in another country, get all your visas, etc. They sort of, you know, add, add a little bit more stress and strain into life. But every time we've got sort of settled somewhere, we've felt home and felt relaxed once we've sort of got to know it. So it's added some pulls and pushes into life. In terms of research, I think it's just been good to experience different groups and different ways of looking at problems and then being able to take the best of what I've learned from different researchers along the way to sort of go, okay, yeah, I, I like doing it this way, but this way was good. And, you know, try to try to build my own sort of research path and think as now I go into my next stage of my career, how do I build my research group and how do I want that to work? And so do you have any advice or any tip for someone that is maybe considering go abroad for doing a PhD or a postdoc or someone that is already, you know, something that really worked well for you? Or something just like, you know, do it or don't do it. <laughs> I think if the opportunity is there to do it and you're fairly confident that you're you're going to a group that's going to be advantageous to you, do it. It's I think it's a it's not for everybody. <laughs> I wouldn't you know, I would say think about it. Definitely. But if you really, you know, they're going, oh, should I, should I, should I? Yes, definitely do it. Yes, that's that's such a really good experience. I know that because I'm doing like a PhD abroad. Uh, because of an European program named TAPAS that you know well because you're yes. also involved in this one. So can you tell us a bit more about this project? Not for me because I know it, but for <laughs> all the people that listen to our podcast. TAPAS was one of the first projects I was involved at from the very beginning. I helped write the grant proposal for that with um, Matthew from IDIAP and Heidi from Sheffield amongst other sort of people. And yeah, it's a Mary Cree training fellowship scheme. So the idea was to gather together experts in sort of speech pathology. And we broke the project into a few different arms and created a sort of few different PhDs with some similar themes. So I was involved in the more emotion and health style work package while I was working on there with um, researchers from Phillips, from Augsburg, where I was, from Sheffield and from IDIAP as well. So it was a good opportunity to, I guess, work closely with PhD students across different countries. And the idea of the scheme as well is to take someone from abroad. So it's not, it's meant to sort of encourage these interactions, encourage sort of multicultural mixing, I guess, in the research labs. And for that, it's, again, it's, uh, the meetings have all been really fun. We go to different countries, we meet lots of different people, go to, yeah. And both sides of it, it's been culturally educating and educating for me as well in terms of how to set up a project, how projects run and all, all the sort of back end of it that sometimes as a PhD student or early in your postdoc, you're not as aware of. Okay, so we talked about tapas, but you were also involved in other very exciting projects, right? 
Uh, one of them is led by King's College and Jensen Pharmaceutica, and it's called Radar CNS and focuses on remote assessments of disease and relapse. So what is the big goal of this project and what is it? can you tell us about it? Yeah, no problems. This is, Radar CNS is a really big project. It's a IMI initiative. So what this means is that it's part funded through the Horizon 2020 scheme, but then also part funded through pharmaceuticals and through industry. So every single arm of the project is either is co-led by an industrial partner and an academic partner. So it's trying to bring, bring about sort of fundamental changes that sort of both sides of things want to happen, want, want to see happen. And um, it's involving using wearables to track people with epilepsy, depression, and multiple sclerosis. So we've developed a sort of whole software suite really for sort of collecting and storaging this information. And sort of my role in there is about helping analyze it. So how to bring together data that's collected in terms of seconds, like activity and step count and data that's collected in terms of once every couple of weeks doing a speech recording or once every three months doing a different mental health or clinical health assessment. We've got to find ways to get all this data, stick it all together and get it to sort of work in some sort of coherent pipeline, both in terms of analyzing sort of finding different digital biomarkers there in terms of sort of what, what can we get from wearable devices and what can we get from speech and trying to realize different predictive outcomes through both sort of conventional stats and through machine learning. So it's a huge project. I think we've got maybe over around 900 to 1,000 participants sort of enrolled across the three clinical arms. So lots of lots of data. And how do you involve the participants and which type of data do you acquiring like for this project? For example, in a depression arm of the project, we have collections and clinical sites in London, in Spain and in Amsterdam, and they recruit the participants for us. We've got a sort of whole remote enrollment scheme, sort of uh, sort of an enrollment scheme set up. So people come into the clinic, they get enrolled, they get a Fitbit device. We sort of link all, everything together, link it all up with apps on their phones. And that sort of data gets streamed through our radar base app and then eventually sort of ends up on a server here at King's. And um, similar for the MS project, we've got enrollment sites in Italy, Copenhagen and Spain, and then for epilepsy, we've got Germany and London as enrollment sites. So really quite multinational in terms of the amount of data we've got coming in. Wow, that's so impressive. So much data, much more than we're usually <laughs> uh, seeing, you know, in papers that relate healthcare and machine learning. So you said that you're collecting this data from wearables. So it's all like in the wild data, right? So what are the big challenges of uh, working with this type of data? <laughs> Yeah, it's all completely in the wild data. So missing this is a huge problem, you know, and this is, you know, someone forgets to wear their device, someone doesn't charge their device, these sort of things. Of course, software updates <laughs> can cause sort of havoc if they're unexpected. You know, we, we started out thinking, oh, we'll collect a certain amount of data information Midway through the project, Google will sort of say, oh, you can't collect information relating to phone calls and text messages anymore. So, you know, that there goes that whole hypothesis. Um, you know, Google are rumored to buy Fitbit. We have people unenrolled from the study because they don't want their Fitbit information going to Google. These sort of big sort of real world challenges. And in terms of speech, 
you know, it's definitely a big change between, I guess, what we're all used to, people probably coming into one of the universities, sitting in a fairly well set up room with a decent microphone, hopefully a bit of soundproofing, et cetera, and getting lovely recordings. This is now we're asking people to record speech samples on their phone in their own time. And of course, you know, you can hear that people have the TV on the background, people are sat in the pub, <laughs> you know, not everybody, of course, but the odd person coming through, people are doing it on their car or on transport. So these sort of things. And it's definitely one thing we're trying to research now at the moment. Uh, can we identify sort of factors that influence background noise? Is there anything we can relate to clinically or sociodemographically that we can pick up on a better, pe better people better or worse at embaying instructions or not? And it's something we're just about, about to start doing, which will yield some pretty interesting results, I think. Did you have like a chance already to study this, this data? Because uh, I think we live like in a very particular uh, pandemic situation right now. And uh, I, is there any like an expected pattern change because of that? Uh, namely in mental health, sleeping a bit or something else. So uh, does it, does this pandemic affect your, your data? Definitely. We saw and we released a sort of paper saying that, yeah, you could really see, especially in the first lockdown, you know, high levels, high levels activity, no activity. So, you know, these sort of things we'll definitely have to realize as we sort of come through, the idea was to collect data over two year periods and of course, a lot of participants were maybe six months to 12 months into the into their program by the time that the pandemic came through. We've done some initial research and it doesn't look like the pandemic has overly affected sort of mental health within our patient cohort anyway. So that, that was one good thing, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, we definitely have challenges in terms of You know, we had a lot of hypothesis built around, you know, reduction in activity and looking at these things between clinical outputs and then, yeah, changes in sleep patterns and clinical outputs, et cetera, et cetera. So luckily for speech, though, that shouldn't affect us too much. I think the mental health signals still should be there and not be too affected with our speech recordings. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to, you know, a lot of the times we're trying to do a sort of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, all data sort of analysis just to try to get an understanding of what might be going on. But now we even have some participants where we've got more data of them in lockdown than less. So, yeah. Hearing you talk like about all of these data and variety of data, it, it really gets me thinking. You have so many different variables and plus the pandemic affecting all of them. Like it should be super hard to get insights of what is just confounding your results and what is really relevant for the prediction. So you were talking about the background noise. Like, is that just coincidence or maybe people that go to pubs, uh, you should expect some sort of behavior. I, I don't know. It's, there's so many things to explore. I think this is it. There's, Yeah, I've got a couple of years of research, at least within just the speech data alone, just looking, we've got so many different clinical labels, so many different things that have happened throughout the recordings that, yeah, there's so many different ways we look at the data and can ask different research questions of it and explore that it's going to keep us busy for a long time and definitely get some really interesting results. And, you know, hopefully I'll be able to record some more similar data to it soon as well to sort of expand on any initial findings and sort of see what comes out. Oh, that sounds like super interesting. And like you're selling it very well. Like, do you have any position available for this project? Like, <laughs> Currently, no. So oh. the project is just about to run to an end. We're finishing up in March next year. So yeah, it's... um. 
I'm looking for money to sort of come in to get some people involved and come in to do some research. So hopefully, you know, some people like my grant applications out there and I'm able to build, build the size of my team up and we can do some really fun, interesting research. You're also part of another project that we, that's named Sustage. So it means smart environment for person-centered sustainable work and well-being. Uh, can you tell us also a bit more about this project? So yeah, sort of similar, similar but different <laughs> to um, Radar CNS in terms of trying to collect lots of data using sort of wearable devices. Using you know, it, it was more about creating a system to allow sort of older workers who might be in more blue collar jobs to have a more sustainable lifestyle in and around their working sort of environment. So people on production lines, if you're doing highly repetitive jobs, how can we make sure that they're comfortable in the job, that they're not, you know, doing some sort of action long term that's going to cause them serious harm? Are they socializing? Are they cognitively challenged enough in the work? And how, how do we sort of use the information gathered through wearables to create a system to realize all of this? So I, I, I unfortunately, with my change of jobs, left that project after a year, but we were just sort of, when I left was sort of setting it all up and, you know, they've been undergoing some data collection there and I'm looking forward to seeing the results coming out of that pretty soon. But it was a really interesting in terms of the setup of just using the similar sort of wearable speech data, but realizing a slightly different problem and issue with it. So yeah, it's sort of creating a personal assistant, I guess. But the real core of it was going, okay, can we make sure, you know, this person's living a healthier, happier lifestyle, both inside and outside work, and with this, especially with the aim of sort of motivating people to stay in work longer. It's so different from the type of research that we usually see. I don't know. I mean, it's the wearable devices and all of that, but it's such a different uh, application. So are there any particular in the industries or sector or you know, are the industries interested in this? So is this a two-way or is just the research trying to solve a problem? Yeah, well, we definitely had industrial partners on that project. So yeah, we were working with a car manufacturer from Italy and a port company in Greece. So people, look, yeah, looking, as I said, those more sort of industrial style jobs and aiming at the sort of elderly workers in there. So the, these companies identified that, yeah, this was a, a potential issue that they were interested in exploring and researching with us. The speech research fits within this project or was it more the machine learning part or data acquisition? So how were you involved with all of this? So the speech research in this one were gaining little sort of snapshots, I guess, of the, you know, emotional mental state of people at particular times. So trying to just use that speech to get out that core emotion information. So you know, maybe through the wearables, we could pick up that something's happening and then we can sort of use the speech signal to sort of confirm suspicions sort of through there. So that was a little bit of the work we were doing. And yeah, also involved in the sort of trying to get it to all fit together in terms of a data collection pipeline and then into an analysis pipeline as well. So we've talked about several of your projects related machine learning and health and well-being. But besides this, you've worked in different aspects of speech paralinguistics throughout your career, right? So we have seen works that you've done in speech emotion recognition, suicide risk assessment, snore signals, brain signals for intimacy detection, even laughter tracking and uh, emotion detection in dog barks. <laughs> 
So, you know, from all of these, is there something else that you want to share with us, some other work that you're excited or that you've done in the past and that you're excited and we haven't talked much yet about? No, I think you think you've sort of covered over everything really nicely there. With my move now, I guess, to King's, I'm really going back towards mental health and particularly interested in picking up a, and focusing a lot more deeply into depression and anxiety and sort of different mental health conditions where just started a project recently where we have recordings of mothers talking about their infants and we then want to be able to see if we can assign a risk score for that infant developing a mental health issue so it's a really different different way of looking at these problems so we're doing that both from a linguistic and a paralinguistic standpoint so we've just started there so, so no real other other than a cool research question no, no real insights to share there yet but it's going to be a definitely a fun one to a be more of a different challenging one of how we're going to be able to sort of what network is going to be the best for realizing this i don't think we've we're still sort of wrapping our head around that very different data yeah, it sounds like a very interesting and important research topic. Moving on to something else, like in the last episode, we interviewed Odette and we were discussing about the publication pressure uh, in the research community and especially the pressure we feel as PhD students. Uh, and what are your thoughts on this topic? And do you have any advice for, for PhD students that on the essentials of publishing? Publishing, of course, is a really important aspect of what we do and sort of why we do it. If uh, I guess if we're not publishing, we're not giving ourselves that chance to disseminate and further our sort of careers. If we're just generating results on our computer and not sharing them, then they don't have a life of their own, essentially. And I think it's probably better, you know, my advice would be to, to focus, especially in your PhD, of a probably smaller number of higher quality publications and things that are going to fit within in your thesis and make it that one sort of coherent document at the end of the day so trying to try to have a bit of a publication plan around the research that you're going to need to do that's going to go into your thesis and I mean the main advantage of that then if you're publishing things you know late into your first year into your second year of your PhD they've undergone peer review and you've improved them and then they're sort of almost ready to go as chapters or sections of your PhD but yeah it's it's tough when there's a lot of pressure to publish and pulling things out quickly it's some it is you know a couple of a couple of conference papers a year a journal paper a year you know these these are sort of good good sort of targets to be aiming at in, in terms of having building up a sort of solid portfolio without going over the top i mean it is a tough one because yeah we we do need to it's great to publish it's great to get those works there and it's always a, always nice getting good reviews as well it's yeah <laughs> thank you for thank you for your advice so we got to know a bit about your career and professional path and now we want to know a bit more about yourself so is there any fun fact or funny story that you want to share with us <laughs> I've been pondering this one a little bit since you guys warned me it might be coming up. Um, I've been on television for both my careers. So when I was working as an electrician, we got hired to do some work on a reality television show. So we were filmed sort of putting in lights and fixing bits of kitchen up and stuff, which was 
a bit of a weird experience as only 18 at the time sort of why are all these people watching me work what's going on you know was asked to sort of uninstall and reinstall things about four or five times so they could get you know different angles in the right shot so that was that was quite funny and been on been on a couple of science show in Australia as well as part of my PhD so that was fun with my supervisor other fun facts no I think that was probably the, the one that I thought of that to share with you guys Maybe we could ask you with more difficult questions. So is there any story you want to share with us that is less successful? You know, something that did not go so well, but maybe you end up coming over it. You know, some failure stories that people usually don't tell. I mean, in, in research, things don't work. And it's, it's, a, it's, you know, that thing where you can set up the experiment the best you can. You can talk to your supervisors, you can get the best advice and, and things just don't work, unfortunately. And that's not a fault of ours. And I think as, you know, especially in PhDs, it's, it's hard not to take that, I guess, maybe a little bit more personally as we're sort of learning to do research. But I think failure and getting things wrong is, is a really sort of important thing to overcome. And, uh, you know, I have sort of three months and gigs of data from my PhD that never really got published as a paper. They made a, they made it into my thesis as a small sort of interesting chapter that I was quite proud of, but it was sort of showing that a lot of things didn't work and to get that published is quite harder and a little bit, you know, I think we need to sort of revisit that and as a community and go, how can, you know, negative results got by good scientific measure methods are still as important as positive results got by a good scientific me method you know as long as that we've set out we've done the research to the best of our ability if we haven't got the answer we're looking for it's important for the community to know that so nobody else has to go and do that experiment again and at the start of my phd sort of had a tougher time we wanted to build a database of suicidal speech voices And during the sort of collection of that data meant I was exposed a lot to recordings of people in suicidal mindsets. And this definitely affected my mental health. And I did have to have a little bit of time off during that to just sort of, you know, whoa, that's heavy, that's very different. And that was sort of one of the first realizations of, I guess, how multidisciplinary my research was and ethics sort of hadn't taken that in, into consideration that we as speech researchers were being exposed to something that was potentially bad for our mental research the sort of ethics was set up and designed to protect the participant but there was definitely lessons to be learned in terms of protecting us against what's in our data and any harmful effects that could have back onto us through sort of exposure to traumatic events well tough story I mean, yeah, that's so true. You, you, you're always trying to protect the participants and uh, usually there are no guidelines whatsoever to, to also protect the mental health of the researchers. And, okay, now to lighten up the mood <laughs> a little, <laughs> we have prepared a small lightning interview for you. So we're going to make several questions, most often like uh, presenting two scenarios. And then you just need to answer in one word uh, with the first thing that comes to mind not a lot of thinking. So, okay, are you ready? Yep. Okay, so let's start. So if you weren't a speech researcher, what would you have been? Still be an electrician. <laughs> One of your hobbies? My cat. It worked, it worked. What's your favorite sandwich? Something with avocado in it. How much screen time per day? Too much. How many unread emails do you have in your email box? 
haven't checked this morning. So <laughs> hopefully not too many. What is the for audience? Your cats or a PhD committee? My cats have not really interacted in any of my lockdown lectures, so I'd say them. Espresso or American coffee? Espresso. Morning or evening? Morning. Indoor or outdoor? <laughs> It's a pandemic, so indoor. <laughs> Windows, Mac or Linux? I've been on Mac for a year and I'm quite happy on Mac. So this is a tough one. Extra-linguistic or paralinguistic? Paralinguistic. CNNs or RNNs? CNNs. What's the best place to drink a beer? Australia, Germany or England? Maybe this one is But... the toughest one. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the toughest one you've asked. Near the beach in Australia, in a beer garden in Germany, in a, pro in a proper British pub in Britain. And Mermite or Vegemite? Um... Vegemite, but it, I'm, I'm on the not too Australian side of that. It's not my favorite of spreads. And the last one, finally, Spanish tapas or the tapas project? <laughs> well, for food, Spanish tapas, definitely. It's, yeah, amazing. For research, tapas project, of course. Okay. And so in consideration to our listeners that usually enjoy our would you rather questions, or at least we like to think so. We've prepared a special would you rather question for you. So would you rather have an Australian spider lost in your bed or a bug lost in your code? <laughs> I'll take the Australian spider because I guess I know what I'm dealing with there. <laughs> I'm not sure that's such a consensual answer, but <laughs> maybe, you know, you're used to it. <laughs> I, I was so, telling I was telling one of um, one of my students a spider story the other day, and it's like I got out of the shower one day, and there was a massive spider straight on my towel, and it's like uh, I sort of can have to throw the towel into across the room and sort of figure a way to go and get another one. And yeah, my wife's had a spider jump out of the letterbox onto her, but the big ones normally aren't the poisonous ones, and we don't actually see the bad ones too often, so. Okay, that's good advice for someone who wants to go there. Big ones are not so dangerous, only very scary. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for answering the, all of the questions in the lightning interview. And now before we wrap up our final question. So if you could choose any speech researcher and ask him or some, anything, what would it be? I've been really lucky and I've always found speech researchers really approachable. So I, I've asked a lot of these questions already to a lot of different speech researchers and I think my advice to PhD students is if you have a question to a senior researcher ask them you know approach them I think everybody almost everybody I met in the speech community is open and willing to chat so get out there and ask those questions because I did and it sort of helped me along my way definitely. Great advice. Thank you. Thank you for answering all of our questions and for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Nick. And thanks, everybody and everyone that listened to this episode of Speech Speech. Stay tuned for future episodes because we might interview your favorite speech researcher. <laughs> Speech Pitch by Iska Sack. 